0: Good day, everyone. This is the Ontolog Forum, and it's September 14th, year 2006. I'm Peter Yem, co-convener of the Ontolog uh, Community of Practice, and I'm your host today. Uh, we have the honor of having our invited speaker, Professor Ellen Rector from the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom, with us today. Uh, in view of the huge crowd, uh, we will do away with the normal round of, uh, self-introductions. However, I would request, uh, this of anyone who speaks up to first introduce yourself, uh, stating your name and affiliation as well as where you are coming from. Uh, we will be recording the session, uh, and the audio archive will be available from the session page, uh, Uh, before the end of the day. Uh, It will also be available on podcast as well as on telephone playback. Uh, To help us get a better audio and recording quality, uh, please put your phone on mute when you are not speaking. Uh, But under no circumstances, uh, should you put your phone on hold uh, if you have to take another call or something uh, hang up and call back in because some phones it would introduce music into the conference line and that racks up the entire recording and I'm going to start this session with asking professor Bob Smith to introduce our invited speaker Bob thank you Peter I am really pleased today to introduce uh, Dr. Alan Rector. I've been a fan of his for a decade and had a good chance to uh, speak with him at the uh, Protege Conference in Bethesda a couple of years ago. And I want to
1: basically warn you that the first reading is not going to do it. The second reading is not going to do it. And I'm sure you'll find yourself waking up um, in the middle of some night saying, Boy, I really now see what
0: Alan was talking about. So, his uh, bio background and references are very well documented on his website, and I think we're going to get into the content. Uh, Dr. Alan Rector, the show is
1: yours, sir. Oh, thank you very much. If anybody has trouble hearing <coughs> me, please let me know. Um, the, on my website, if there are broken links, our university has just been merged, and the university IT service has just performed the service of creating new merged websites for everybody. Uh, in the process of this, most of the links have broken. And they haven't provided us with the service of actually trying to repair them. So let me know if there are things you can't find. Hopefully we're, we're making progress. What I want to talk about today, I, my background I'll talk about a bit, is in, really in medical terminologies rather than ontologies per se and medical records. I, I want to talk initially about the a bit of the history of medical terminology, and then I want to focus in on one of the things which is becoming a big issue, which is quality assurance, which I think has implications beyond the medical terminology area. I wish I could say that we, any of us have done this very well. There is as much a mea culpa in this as there is any kind of accusation against anybody else. I don't think any of us have really done some of the things that we ought to be doing. So if you move on to slide three, um, Some of these have been made from animation, so they're in a little bit of pieces. Really, medical terminology for history really does come from public health and vital statistics and epidemiology. To go on to the next slide, there's a picture here of the London Bills of Mortality which were produced every Thursday from 1603 to late the 1830s. And you can see various sorts of things that were recorded as causing... Uh, death, we've had to do. Some of my colleagues can tell you what rising of the lights actually means. I'm not sure. Plague is rather more obvious. Um, by the 1880s, uh, these had become a very general form of statistics, widely used, as you'll see on the next slide. And going on to the next one, <clears throat> again, here is 1754. The sorts of things that people died of, consumption, convulsion, dropsy, fever, smallpox, teeth killed a lot of people. Interesting, people died of infected teeth, a curious fact from modern thought, rather more than from excessive drinking, surprisingly. You go on to the next slide. Um, It really got formalized in the medical area. I haven't unfortunately merged these cards with my French colleagues because it was actually a competition between the French and the English over this, as over so many other things. The French had a version rather like SNOMED, the, the original faceted SNOMED, which some of you know. The English, the thing that became the International Classification of Diseases with FAR in the 1860s. And really, there was a fairly straight line from that to what we now have as ICD-9 and now ICD-10. A different variant was the International Classification of Primary Care, which was also focused on epidemiology. The, in the meantime, people started reusing these epidemiological classifications for other purposes. And if you go on to slide eight. There, are, there was librarianship, there was payment, and they're now very important. If you want to get paid in the United States for doing things, you better report your results according to ICD-9 clinical modification or the clinical procedure terminology, and otherwise you won't get paid by the government. They were also used for pathology indexing, and. Question. No. And one of the important ones that grew out of that was the systematic nomenclature, first of pathology, SNOP, and then of medicine, SNOMED, um, which was faceted, in the sense that there was one part for the morphology, one part for the anatomy, one part for the etiology, and one part for modifiers. And there have been any number of specialized systems since, thin- radiology, nursing, the list goes on and on. But in the also in the 80s came along early computer systems, and the first of these coding systems came into effect. On the one hand, Oxmith, again for epidemiology, was part of the big epidemiology project in Oxford, the read codes really the purpose of the original purpose of the read codes was to see how much data you could squeeze onto a one megabyte floppy disk. And the four byte code could be compressed pretty tightly and you could get a lot of data on a floppy disk. Um, they also they more or less followed I C D and were purchased by the UK government in around nineteen ninety. There were a number of other things that have come along that are worth mentioning. Jim Simineau did an enormous amount of work on a medical entities dictionary, which is still at use at Columbia. DOINC is very important as a standard for laboratory data, and any of you who deal with drugs will be aware of Meddra, which was originally a British classification of adverse reactions to drugs. Um, there, the point about all of this is that there are a lot of them. Um, and the response to there being a lot of them, one of the responses has been the National Library of Medicine, um, go on to slide 10, producing the Unified Medical Language System, U N L S And this produces a cross-reference... The main function is a cross-reference of most of the codes which are coded anywhere there's also a semantic small semantic net I see this slide is out of date it actually should be about 200 types and very important there's a lot of specialist linguistic information if you're trying to dig to do text mining out of medical material there's lots of that material in UMLS. but the important thing to know about the UMLS is on the next slide but if you're dealing with medical systems, one of the quality things which I would say by now is almost essential is that you map to CURIEs plus MUIs. And the UMLS, the really key, it all ought to be sufficient to have a concept unique identifier, a CURIE. Uh, in practice, particularly for some of the things that were put in early, it is useful to have a Louis, if there's any question, which is a lexical unique identifier, a sort of standardized lexical form, uh, in order to distinguish if there's any ambiguity in the CUI. So I know it sounds very silly, and people can hardly keep a straight face when they say it, but we do strongly recommend that as people build medical systems they build them and they map them to Cooey's plus Louis. If you go on to the next slide, it illustrates that there really are still problems. One of the things which happened in the medical, in the course of building the read codes on a wet Saturday afternoon, was somebody in the, who was working on diabetes coded up the names of the various British chocolate bars. And as you'll see on the next slide, when the Reed codes were combined with SNOMED to form SNOMED-CT, somebody translated those codes directly across into SNOMED-CT. And so we have SNOMED-CT identifiers for everything except a cream egg. And they just, Cadbury's cream eggs just don't have any American equipment. But there's a problem with this. It's wrong. If you go on to slide 14... Um, An American Mars bar is actually closer to, uh, excuse me, a British Mars bar is closer to an American Milky Way. An American Milky Way, well, these people think is closer to uh, British Three Musketeers. I'm not quite sure about that one. Um, And certainly, British Smarties are closer to M&Ms than they are to American Smarties. The point is, there are plenty of real examples of this, of much more import. And mapping, just using names, or even using names, mapping isn't always easy. And UMLS does quite a careful job of it. It's a really important thing that Stuart Nelson and his team spend a lot of time getting this right. And I don't think they can... To be 100% right, it would be insulted if I said that people occasionally found glitches. But it's an, it's an important resource because it hasn't just been thrown together, people have looked at it. Um, I have a question. Yeah? My name is Jim Warner. I'm from Boeing. Uh, back on uh, page, uh, slide 11. Yeah? you show a concept unique identifier related to many lexical identifiers yeah related to one other concept identifier is it possible for a concept unique identifier to be related to more than one concept unique identifiers yeah mm-hmm. that I should have I should have edited that sub bit of animation that sh- didn't get quite edited out apologies for that you should the co- you note that the color of the arrow is different yes they In the metaphosaurus, they keep all of the relations from any of the cross-indexed systems. They don't attempt to rationalize them. But you can follow what SNOMED thinks are the links between the things that have been mapped to CUIs, or what ICD thinks are the links, or what various other, um, various other terminologies think are the links. So there's quite a rich set of links between CUIs within the metathesaurus. I see. Okay. But they aren't for identification purposes. They're things like of and causes or aggravates, things of that sort. So, apologies, that's that's a not quite edited slide. It's fine. Thank you very much. Right. So, if we go back now to slide 15 and the aspirations that people have. They want to go beyond just recording. And the first person to push this was Larry Wee. And above all, people have looked and hoped that they could use medical records for decision support. And this should bring us, and so you've got a shift, we've gone to slide 16, from communication that was just human to human. We now have to think about human to human human to machine, and machine to machine, and there's been a shift. We still deal with paper, but we also have software, and people aspire to move from single use to reuse, and a major thing that people aspire to do, perhaps foolishly, is to get clinicians to enter the data which is used for collecting information themselves, rather than having coding clerks enter it. Most of the data that actually gets sent in for epidemiological purposes, and for most other purposes, has been entered in the deep, dusty basements of hospitals by frequently little old ladies, but not always, uh, but by coding clerks very painfully, a long way away from the actual care of the patient. So there is this move from machine processable to multi, from human to machine and to software, which means, and that's where we got into the line, because that meant we needed much more rigor. As long as you're just talking and you have people to understand, you may have misunderstandings, but there's no need for the sort of vigorous forms that people are now producing, and this is where medical terminologies started to come together with what are now labeled ontologies, just about the time that Tom Gruber started using the word ontology, or at least popularized the word ontology, for use as the skeleton of knowledge-based systems. So our own history is on page 18, which is usually an animated slide. We started out on the right hand side, literally, in the early, in the late 70s, working on trying to promote best practice through decision support. We couldn't find the data for decision support, so we got working on medical records. We couldn't actually get the data into the medical records, so we got working on data entry. We couldn't find the terms to put in use in the data entry, so we got working on terminology. That led us that was really where our early projects on Pen and Pad, which a few of you may have known, which was a point-and-click interface developed in the early 90s. And then Galen, which was a large European project to develop, originally to carry on Pen and Pad, but it ended up developing surgical ter- terminologies for surgical, uh, use, for use in coding surgical procedures across Europe. Back to data entry, health records, Um, much more now into clinical research because the issue of how this all fits together with omic data and the gene ontology uh, all of the various um, the the, uh, online Mendelian inheritance of man, OMIM and all the various other basic science resources is now a hot topic someday maybe we'll get around to best practice again we're working on it. But the problem that we ran into, which is central to what we think, how we think about these things and why we build terminologies the way they do, is that the thing we ran into with enumeration didn't scale. The first version of the read codes had about 5,000 codes in. The second version had about 20,000, and that still worked really well, and that's still in use in a lot of places. The third version never got finished. And the, really what they just called version two, it never really was finished. Version three never really was finished and has now been combined into SNOMED, which has at least 400,000 codes. And still many of the application people fail to find the things they want. And there's some very basic reasons for this. And Go on to the next slide. Again, this would have been animated, but it doesn't. We keep having this pattern that people predict that the amount of effort going in is going to fall, and they look and they find the amount of effort going up. And about the time we got into this project, Larry Weed had just had the Promise system. the money cut back. They were trying to produce a frame or a screen for every situation in hospitals. And they had said that it would look like the predicted line, and in fact it looked like the actual line. And they got up to 70,000 screens, and it was still accelerating, at which point somebody decided that maybe there was a problem. So a key problem is how do we manage this combinatorial explosion? It doesn't really matter what you have in that list, whether it's conditions times sites times modifiers times activity times context, or almost anything else you want, settings times users times conditions times path. the numbers get very big. And we've got to get the effort, if you go on to the next slide, if, if, the things to build are just going to keep growing. So we've got to get the effort per term to start falling or we're never going to make progress. And We'd ideally like a sort of a nice, flattish curve. We'll probably accept a big bump at the beginning. But if we're going to get funded and sustain it, it's got to flatten out to some sort of linear-like shape, but we're not going to make it. And to show you that this is not just a joke, this is from Jeremy Rogers. If we go on to slide 22, our favorite example of combinatorial explosions in terminology is the codes for injuries to bicyclists in the ICD. In 1972, there were eight. By the Reed Codes in the early 80s, there were 81. By the Reed three version, it had grown only a little bit to 87. By the... It's actually the Australian revision of ICD-10. If you go on to the next slide, there were 587, including an injury to an occupant of a three-wheeled motor vehicle, injured in collision with a fetal cycle, person on outside a vehicle, non-traffic traffic traffic accidents while working for income. Um, Also, driving or submerging while in a bathtub on a street or highway while engaged in sports activity. Um, You can see how these were created by spinning a fruit machine and getting all the combinations. If you do that, you get horrendous numbers, and you can't manage it. Our interest is in how you manage that. And really, it's not very many facts. There are only ten things to hit. We're on to the next slide, 24. Five roles for the injured, five activities when being injured And two contexts. And there are actually a lot of constraints amongst those, so that only a relatively small fraction of all those combinations actually make any kind of sense. But just reducing it down to 50 facts out of 500 is a huge reduction. And you could put this on a picking list or on a form. This, is, this one is not one we actually built in slide 25, but slide 26 is a picture of a commercial system that lasted only briefly thanks to the reorganization of the NHS at a critical time, which really was built on generating forms by putting together the combinations of what it was sensible to say, filtered through a priority mechanism called Clinergy, and you got many, many forms generated on the fly. A lot of the interesting synergy originally was in the user interface, and it grew out of the user-centered design project. But the, in many ways, from the, today's point of view, the most interesting thing was we generated a, enough forms to cover most of general practice, out of no more than about 10,000 facts. And the other thing that was important in Clinergy, which is an important issue, I believe, in many systems, is we always presented information back to doctors in the form of text. On slide twenty seven is the text that is generated out of the previous the forms on the previous slide. And that's quite easy to do. One of the things that puzzles me is why people using formal languages don't do more with generated text. The Open University here, Dona Scott's group, has excellent tools for generating much more sophisticated text than we needed to, but it isn't enormously difficult to do it quite easily, and of course this was one of the things that got us involved in Europe, because whether you generated in English or Finnish is relatively unimportant. But behind our approach to how you defeat the combinatorial explosion is the notion of conceptual Lego, that you build things out of pieces rather than having great long things, you start with the blocks. And if we go on to slide 29, this is a real concept used in one of our bio examples. It's the, it's the single change of a single base pair in DNA, an FMP, a single nucleotide polymorphism of a particular kind of a gene which causes the defect in membrane transport of chloride ions. Which causes the increase in viscosity of mucus and cystic fibrosis. Trying to have it, imagine a listing which would have all the things like that that you might want to say isn't something you'd want to do. Even just getting anatomically normal hands is difficult. What you want to do is illustrated on the following page, 30. If you want to build these things up from primitives, you want a hierarchy of species, something about different kinds of genes, like CFTR genes, of different kinds of proteins, of different kinds of functions, like membrane transport, of different kinds of diseases. And those lines across, each one of those orange arrows represents a logical definition for the blob beneath it. Using logic, whether it's in the form of OWL and description logics, or whether it's in the form of conceptual graphs, or whether it's in some other logical notation, the thing that you're doing is you're providing a means for joining together manageable lumps of information. And the key thing is it's more manageable that way than than it is. I can maintain a hierarchy of species, I can maintain a simple taxonomy of kinds of genes. Proteins probably is actually really half a dozen different taxonomies hooked together itself. Um, but breaking it apart into simple trees and then putting it back together has been a key part of our methodology from the beginning. And we put forward as a key issue of if things are going to scale, we believe this is how you have to do it. And when I come to quality, scaling is a key issue for quality. This is just a slide on 31 to point out, which I usually use when I'm talking to people whose main interest is description logic or the logic side of it, that in any real system, the what's here called the concept module, the thing that's the description logic classifier, is just one small piece that you need a lot of things to be able to actually use a terminology. And I think this is clearly true of most of our ontologies for the Semantic Web. The amount of metadata that we need, provenance data, language data, history data, and the amount of material to help you get to it and use it, far outweighs the actual core ontology in many, many cases. There's, since we're talking about quality, I want to move on to talk about the issue that is the elephant in the corner, that certainly for many things in the medical world, I think in the biology world and in some other worlds, this is less serious, but maybe that's just because I'm a medic, But in the medical world, there's a big problem, that people can look at the same thing and come up with different answers. This is an experiment Jeremy Rogers did a long time ago. With, he's done it both with people who were supposed to know about art history and with people who were studying medical informatics. There is an Greek picture which is deliberately ambiguous. Here are some facets from the Art and Architecture Thesaurus. And on the next slide are some of the things that people actually attach to things um some of it through ignorance obviously significant numbers of people didn't know what a French horn would look like um it's interesting that most people thought it was a woman in fact we know the the people who know about art will tell you that Magritte was going to great trouble to make it an ambiguous figure and it's about a 50-50 split so maybe he succeeded fairly well um You can see we can't even agree on the background color. There's a big issue in inter-rater reliability, which we can spend a huge amount of effort on the logical foundations of what we do, but if people can't actually agree and put the things in consistently, we're not actually doing ourselves any favors, and the data we collect is going to be rubbish. Um... Unfortunately, this is entirely true. This is an extreme example. I've been trying to get from Jeremy one of his better examples. But the difference in the coding rates of different diseases between different practices can be enormous, both in the relative level and in the absolute level. I thought I'd taken that one out. There's only one medical system, modern system, that's really taken this seriously for use in general use for clinical purposes, and that's the International Classification of Primary Care, which rather than having 20,000 or 200,000, has on the order, at least in its early form, of about 2,000 rubrics, but with an enormous amount of effort spent on testing whether those rubrics in each of the languages, the original language was Dutch, but in English, Dutch, French, Spanish, Italian, German, and I'm not sure, I presume some of the Scandinavian languages, that they actually could get people to enter the data consistently with a high inter-rater reliability and a high kappa. Uh, Almost nobody else has done this, We often get the excuse, well, actually the rate of reliability is a function as much of the application of the coding system. Undoubtedly true, but that doesn't mean that we can ignore it. Um, oh, actually, this this slide should have, was supposed to have been dropped. Oh, a couple of slides that were supposed to be deleted didn't. I should probably pass on to slide 39. of key issues in building up terminologies for which we might worry about the quality. Um, One of them was, the first one is really a community, and most of the terminologies that we've had succeed, they either have had coercion behind them, or they've had a community that they were so useful to that they worked or they gave access to something absolutely vital, like the mesh headings give access to PubMed and the literature. Um, One of the things that should be happening in many of these things is, given logic in the web, we ought to be able to create communities in which we can create things just in time. We ought to be able to use new technology to make things much more rapidly. The social web community with things like Open Directory and Wikipedia, Flickr, etc., is doing this brilliantly. The medical community hasn't done this very well. Um, a lot of Galen's work was in trying to create a community by hiding the complexity. Galen was enorm- had a very complex underlying representation, but it was reduced to a very simple surface representation, if you like, a higher level language, in order to be used by the local editors. And in that process, when we started out and we asked people to edit things in the equivalent of OWL, it took three months coming to Manchester and only about half the people ever got it. After we switched to basically a simple outline form in which which embodied each of the patterns that we used and made them easy, we got it down to three days, preferably with a refresher course. And we moved in that process the effort, most of the effort, to the periphery. Instead of having most of the effort the central authors, we got 80% or more of the effort out to the periphery and only 10 to 20% into the central authors. And because it was logical, most of the time when people made mistakes they could see them and fix them themselves it was only when something happened that they didn't understand that they had to come back to the gurus um, the other result was that the gurus went from writing ontologies to writing ontology patterns they went from writing on, if you like, they went from writing ontologies to writing meta-ontologies One of the other things that we're very weak on at the moment is having good schemas or meta-ontologies for our ontologies. Another key issue for us is building it for something. This is, I think, a bigger problem in medicine than anywhere else. It's lovely fun to build ontologies, and some very big ones have been built for medicine, tying them down to particular applications is that has often been very limited and we now come back even with med C P and have applications developers telling us, well, for it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that and it doesn't do something else. Because it hasn't really been built from the ground up. It's been built from the sky down. Um, So something where you translate these things, and if you're going to have a common terminology, then views become a key issue. And if you want to have views, again, we find we have meta-authors authoring views and onto something which is more complicated than our users are ever going to see. What slide are you on, now? Sorry, I've moved on now. The view slide was on 43, if we move on to forty-four, thank you. So, on slide forty-four, another issue in the medical area, which is actually coming up in a different form, very much in the in an analogous way of the link between ontologies and STOs and the simple knowledge organization system and many simple story, is that even more than there we have the curious situation in medicine that one group develops the information models. That's called there a group called H L seven is the largest one in the United States or FEN in Europe or ISO. And other groups develop the terminologies and they overlap. And so we have a real problem in describing how the terminologies actually link the application, in this case medical records and even more if we move on to slide 45 to decision support and at the moment this is the point at which our big standard terminologies are being used, They're, they're not being used really seriously except as a set of identifiers and I'll come back to that in the next part of the talk and Finally, a real issue which I'm concerned with in many of these systems is that it's particularly a problem in the medical area. I think the biologists have been enormously more successful in this, probably because they don't actually have 150 years of legacy behind them. But one of the problems of a long legacy is the strong tendency to keep doing things the same way and produce what one of our colleagues has called pregacy, or pre-built legacy. Things that follow on from something you've already discovered you're going to have to fix, but you keep going. And I think one of the things in many of the areas that we work in is only a tiny fraction of the data that's eventually going to be held using these things has yet been collected. So there's a tremendous premium on fixing obvious things now. And, excuse me, on the next slide, another major issue that we have as we come to developing these things for quality is empirical data. The amount of empirical data on ontologies anywhere in biomedicine, but particularly in medical use, is limited. And one of the important things, is the typo on the slide, I think it's had a bouncing F, um, is actually, well, this important range for collaboration is this, with language technology. It is just amazingly arrogant to think that we can guess a priori what language people are going to use. If you want to find out what words are actually used by doctors, you have to go out and look. If you want to find out what actually scales, you have to try it out. And that's particularly true with our modern classifiers, which are, at base, worst-case exponential. Most of the time, they work very well. If you get the structure wrong, however, you fall off a quest. And actually, we can only chart that quest empirically. And then there's the question of the iterator reliability by users. And then the final issue is again and again and again. These things are things which are going to have to be used by people. And most of the effort and thought that's going in around them is by logicians, or by information scientists, or by IT staff. And getting this pulled out we came and started in a usability lab, and certainly for our part of the world, a lot of the work needs to go back into Usability Labs. So if you move on to slide 49, with that, all of that is in a sense background about where I'm coming from and the sort of things that I've been worried about in trying to think about what a framework for quality assurance for terminologies and ontologies might look like. And so... I've picked up a number of things of wanting to say, well, the very first thing is clearly to think about what is it being used for. And the I've got four levels of use here, certainly in the biomedical area. The first and most important is controlled vocabulary. We're on slide 50 now. And that's actually, most of the things which are labeled ontologies today are not being used as ontologies. They're being used as controlled vocabularies or well-managed sets of identifiers. One of the things which is the medical community learned very early is that using words as identifiers is a bad idea. And using past names or past descriptions as identifiers is a bad idea. The if you in either case changes if some if you want something to be reusable and stable, basing your identifiers on something which is liable to change, either because there is a constant risk of misspelling, or just or because people change want to argue over the labels. Uh, it's much better to have your primary identifiers be long integers. And as somebody who's just starting to build really factored ontologies again, because our tools have finally got up to it, uh, again, trying to build a set of 15 or 20 interlocking, carefully modularized knowledge bases that import each other that have um, have the names, have text names as the things that hold them together, is just incredibly fragile. It's infinitely better if we use a I- non-semantic identifier and that we put the text on as a label. The person who coined the term non-semantic identifier is Jim Semino, and if you <laughs> Google Siminoe oh, and Desiderata, you'll come up with any number, you can eventually find the paper, and you'll come up with any number of discussions of this. The, another part of the evaluation of this is coverage, which is a measure of sensitivity. If of the list of things I might want to find, how many do I find? And most evaluations of medical terminologies are in terms of coverage, in which case, in some sense, depending on your criteria, almost always the larger one wins. Not thought always very interestingly. The second use is the browsable index for searching and finding things. And in that, specificity is much more important than sensitivity. There's classification for retrieval and epidemiology, which for a different audience I'd spend a lot of time on. And then formal representation when we start to actually want to use these things for inference and for driving software, where subsumption part-hole relations, other relations that really start to matter. So, what does that mean in terms of quality assurance? Well, the framework that I've put together suggests something like, well, first look at the consequences, then the content, then the human factors, then the context. You could argue about the order of those. And then remember that these are always a process. Building an ontology isn't building an artifact. It's setting a process in motion. Most, art, most ontologies to be useful have got to be living artifacts. And finally, I put down some humility. Um, it won't do everything. It won't make the coffee. And do put a scope on it. Um, the I want to particularly push the... Uh, oh, excuse me. The other thing which I want to mention in a framework which we've been ah, another typo. Sorry, we've been the victim of repeatedly, has, has everybody else I know in this. Is that in evaluating ontologies and doing quality assurance? You should always do it twice. Once without the collaboration of the people who originated, and then once with. There will be enormous numbers of implicit assumptions that the originators know, and everybody who works with them know, that have never been written down. And you waste an enormous amount of time if you record lots of things that everybody who really is involved in this already knows, and you get people very angry at you. So it's important, on the one hand, to look at it blind, or to have one group look at it blind, because otherwise you haven't evaluated how well it's documented. But it's also, at this stage in our development of ontology, very important to talk to the people who built it as part of your quality assurance. So if we turn first to consequences, I think this is the thing that I find most frustrating in these evaluations, is I want to know what the evidence for somebody's arguing that something is good or bad is. And for strong ontologies if I'm trying to work down in that level four where I'm trying to use them for software or decision support what matters are the inferences that follow from them and so if they give the wrong answers I don't care how beautiful they are and to some extent within scope, if they give the right answers I need a good reason to throw them out uh, and if two of them give the same answers I need to think about how long I want to spend arguing about the difference. And there is a question, though, about what I mean by right and wrong. And for some things, I can go and look at the world. I can go and find out that femurs are on average between, uh, 70, 70, between 50 and 70, 70 centimeters long, and I can do that in the world. Other places I have to go and talk to authorities, and still others, really it's only linguistic usage. Whether the appendage at the end of a chimpanzee's foot, a chimpanzee's lower limb, is a hand or a foot, is curious and debatable and not probably capable of being solved by looking at chimpanzees. It has to do someplace with consensus and linguistic usage. The other thing I'm interested in, in consequences, besides correctness, is robustness. We're going to engineer these things. They've got, are they brittle? Can I change them? An ontology hasn't been tested until you've made changes to it and seen that you can carry through the changes and the labor required. And does it scale up to the size you need? Now, there are many other things for which you don't need big ontology. And if you don't need a big ontology, then scaling doesn't matter. If you do, and for many biomedical things, a small ontology of 10,000 classes, then scaling matters. Uh, Content, that's the one that's checked most easily. Since time is running short, I'll skip over that rapidly. Human factors, I've talked again about this. of both both the iterator reliability and the ease of use. Things that are too big are hard to find things. Things that are too small, you can't say it. If there's too complex, we find distinctions that as far as our users are concerned, don't have a difference. Or if it's too far from common usage, people just throw up their hands. Now, in many cases, the way around this is to give users what we call an intermediate representation what SNOMED calls a close to user form what we might call a high level language and not have them look at the underlying formalism at all context well how well can we say what it's used for and I'll come back to that later process these are living artifacts they have to, we have to evaluate the process by which they're produced and whether we believe it's going to be here in three years time and the test of processes really change. What does it take to change it? That's the thing we have to drive through, and that's the thing I'd like to see on any checklist of quality assurance. Um, Oops. um, I've actually covered the issues. The version I'm looking at at least is slightly old. I hope that if we get to slide 60, in what I updated, I would skip up to there at this point. This illustrates the fact that many ontologies have to fit into something else. And on slide 60, you'll see EHR stands for Electronic Health Record. This uses the particular conventions of Health Level 7 standard. Don't worry about the details. But the important point is that the white bit is done by one group, and the yellow bit is done by another group, and the orange bit is done by a third group. And defining the interfaces between those three levels, and whether there are any such interfaces, is another key issue. That's what I've called context. Do we actually have any way of knowing whether the terminology or the ontology is being used correctly in context. Um, a very important aspect that gets tied into context is, particularly in medical things, is negation and the problem of negative findings. There's nowhere near enough time in this talk to go through except to say that negation is just almost impossible to get right unless you have a formal representation that does it for you. People constantly are getting it wrong, as I hope the next slide will show, that we have things like no family history of stroke underneath no family history of cardiovascular disease. That's where you would expect to find it from browsing, And this is a conflict from how you might want to browse it and how you might want it logically. No family history of stroke does not imply no family history of cardiovascular disease. That is not a subsumption relationship. In the subsumption relationship, the child implies the parent. That's not the case here, and it's almost never the case of negation. Sorting out things like negation, double negation, disjunction, is another point at which you really want to use. If you get in if that's important to you, then you do need help. And the lot the place to go for help in these things is logic. So in terms of quality assurance, I'd like to know either that these things don't happen or that they happen very well. And I don't think there's much middle ground. So This is really where the formal part of the talk ends, and then we can open it up, is some of the lessons from what we've done for, not directions for terminology really, but for quality assurance, is we need to understand the scaling and the combinatorial explosion. This problem that all lists are too big and too small, and that there are too many niches to cope for one by one. If we do it one by one, we will see a combinatorial explosion. We have to know what it's for. And if we want to do quality assurance, I would put them down under these really seven headings, consequences, content, context, process, the implicit information, going and finding out, consulting with developers, some humility... And I think the thing that we're coming to more and more, human factors. Thank you. That's the, what i thought got as a formal
0: presentation. Thank you very much, you. Professor Rector. Uh, this a brilliant mm-hmm. talk. So uh, we'll open it up to the floor. And, uh, Can you hear me? Anyone? I mean, if Can you, you hear me? Someone maybe uh, could you. At least you identify me? yourself oh. that you have a question. Let me take down all the names, and then we can go sequentially.
2: Okay. Uh, can, can you hear me now, Peter? Yes. Oh, okay. I, may, I must have been on mute. Yeah, I have two questions.
0: Okay, Wait, please identify yourself.
2: Patrick Cassidy.
0: Please. Yeah. Oh. From.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh, you mentioned long integers as identifiers. I'm curious, a uh, simple point here. Um Uh, Do you anticipate that these would uh, have error-correcting codes in them because you were talking about typographical errors, and I suggest, I suppose, that would be part of the reason for long integers?
1: Um, There's been a lot of controversy about that. We assume that the long integers are normally never going to be typed and generated by machine. My SNOMED didn't put in error-correcting codes. I would have done so and my instinct is that you should never have a log number without an error correcting code in it um, so pe- some people have been willing to say well actually we're going to generate all these by machine and it doesn't matter um i think for, for a robust solution i believe it ought to have an error correct at least a minimal error, at least an error recognizing code in it if not a full error correcting code in it
2: so uh, if it doesn't if you're not anticipating error correction, and how does the um, integer identifier improve on uh,
1: just the typed linguistic phrases? Oh, because if I w- because if I've misspelled, uh, as I have here, whatever it's going to be, combinatorial or coffee or whatever, and I have to correct the spelling, that then any everything that refers to my ontology now is out of date and I have to make sure that not just I but anybody who depends on this ontology which remember may be in a URL on the web and I may not even know who's using it.
2: Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying that the problem would persist even if you're using long integers identifiers. If the integers well, no. If I
1: use long integers I don't. When I, when I fix the spelling I'm just fixing the spelling of a label and I never change the long integer. I don't generate it by hand. I never use it. I never see it. The only thing that ever sees it is the software.
2: Okay, and the more important question I have is when you talk about um, uh, combinatorial creation of concepts, it's something I'm very dear to my heart too, but um, my feeling is it will only work if everybody uses the same top-level concepts. Uh, what's your views about having a common ontology for that purpose?
1: I think actually the same, within any group you need to get the, a common upper-domain ontology. To make things work, and you need to get common patterns. Um, I don't think we need necessarily. I think we can live with different groups using different very top level ontologies. And I'm, I used to be a great skeptic of top level ontologies. I now even publish them occasionally, um, and I think they are helpful at this point to get people together. For that purpose, though, it isn't just the concept, it's the relations and the patterns. The thing that matters is getting everybody to agree that, any, that, that processes are things, or if you prefer, uh, occurrence are things that things can participate in, and that anything, whether it's continuant or an occurrence, can participate in an occurrence or a process. It's the participation. And the flavors of participation that matter. The, what matters if you're whether you, if you are concerned about the distinction between uh, mass and discrete things, then you need something like the things are made of stuff sort of approach to the world to say what what's going on, or things happen to occurrence. They it's the actually it's the function of an upper level ontology in my view as an engineer it should be to constrain the key relations that you're going to use in the ontology and that's what you actually have to agree on
2: I, is yes, to get people
1: to use the relations in a common way.
2: I absolutely agree with that. That's the critical factor and, and the question I, I would follow up would be whether you think there's any hope
1: I suspect, actually, you, that, that's one of those questions where the devil's in the detail. And there are, you, you find, if you find a lot of the things that I do, my, my greatest experience in this is trying to deal between the clinical world and the anatomic, the world of the professional anatomist. And there we've been able, for most but not all things, to deal with some of the differences that they have by using hierarchies of relations and occasionally hierarchies of concepts uh, and by deferring commitment. By there being... In order to make it possible for us to talk together, there are some things, constraints which you might like to have declare things illegal that you don't dare enforce because there's too much conflict over them but fortunately for most things it's more important to be able to say things than it is to be able to rule out saying things But our favorite example which would come from another talk is the pericardium the covering of the heart and to an anatomist the covering of the heart is a completely separate organ from the heart it develops out of a different tissue it has a different history embryologically and magically in the course of embryologic development this, what's essentially a balloon folds around the heart, deflates, and covers the heart. To a clinician who is faced with a patient in heart failure and has to figure out why the heart is not functioning, one of the things that can go wrong is that there is, an in, there is fluid in that sac, or there's something wrong with the pericardium, and it's keeping the heart from expanding. To the clinician, it's part of the heart. To the anatomist, it's not. We deal with this by having a hierarchy of relations and saying that everything which the anatomist considers to be a part of the heart is a part for the purposes, the clinical purposes, but not conversely. So, clinical part of is a super property of anatomical part of. There are a number of tricks like that that you can use that help. But you, as I say, the devil's in the detail you come to some things that are very hard to bridge. Um, um,
2: yeah, that's a good example of where I'd imagine that you simply, everybody just has to use the same representation, that just, you just can't develop those kinds of relations in separate communities, can you?
1: Well, you, we, we've actually managed quite well to pull together some things. Actually, the things we've pulled together for anatomists have been some of the things we thought were the hard ones. Uh, it's the easy ones that we've had more, more difficulty with. Uh, easy in quote marks. Um, but yes there, there probably are going to be things that it's difficult to agree on. I have, I have difficulty well strangely enough I don't in most concrete cases it depends. I have some if the biggest difficulty I have is between the groups which use a constitutes relationship and say that the clay constitutes the statue and the groups that say that the clay is the statue. Um It's hard to get a tra- it's easy you can get a transform in one direction, but it's hard to get a transform in the reverse direction. Um, by saying it is by making them logically equivalent, you you need a lot of meta apparatus to untangle that once you've tangled it. So I don't know. The thing that's really critical is that you agree on things at the level of cell in medicine, cell, organ, Organelle, mitochondria, protein, peptide. Most of the things a level above that is fairly easy. The gene ontology screwed up badly and labeled genes by their activities as if the as if the activity was a thing rather than a process. And then um, I had to go back and change it. And it wasn't quite as trivial as changing the name Um, because, unfortunately, about 10% of them, they'd gotten tangled and misled by them, so that 10% took 80% of the effort. But it certainly was possible. And I'm not... I think we're still learning. I'm more concerned, actually, about people making decisions The thing I would say about this is I'm always happier to make a distinction than to conflate one. That it's relatively easy if you've made a distinction to decide that actually you don't need it anymore. It's much harder to go back and pick things apart if you haven't made the distinction in the first place. So I spend a large part of my life picking apart things that are hierarchies that are partly part whole and partly kind of, for example, at the simplest level. So if people have been careful and systematic, you can often transform them. If they haven't been careful and systematic, the other thing which is true is they can claim to have adhered to whoever's top ontology. And if they haven't understood it and they haven't been systematic about it, (sighs) it just hopeless. It's being systematic that really matters. Thank you. Hi, Matthew West here. Um, could I take you back to slide twenty-one? Just a moment. My screen has got has blanked out while I was talking.
0: Okay. I'll take you
1: a moment to get back. We'll get there in a yeah. moment. It's the one. It's the one that's uh, showing the different graphs about the amount of effort it takes per turn. Ah, right. Yeah. And and you were showing. Um, what it had to be like so to speak um, what I think I missed was uh, what was going to deliver that the, the, the goal the thing that we, we are trying to say is if you are trying to build if you're trying to take each term as a, as a unit as a long sentence and place it manually in all the places it's going to go it gets very painful in fact, well, if you try and build all the terms, it gets very okay. painful. So this is, combinator- it is, this is a combinatorial problem. Yes. It is, mo- okay. it is more efficient to give people a set of building blocks yes, rather than, the, rather than to give them all the models yes, or to right. give them a dictionary and a grammar rather than a phrase book. One of the things which actually is very important is that if you do that, you only have to actually form a small fraction of the combinatorially many objects that you might want to handle. Of all of those 587 injuries to bicyclists, only a small number will ever actually occur and be needed. What you need is the parts to be able to make them. What you don't need is the enormous effort to catalog all 587 of them,
0: let alone to organize
1: them by hand into a poly hierarchy.
0: We've had the same, same issues, yes. Okay, that's good. Uh, Peter him here, then is that a different way to say that we need ontologies rather than just terminologies? No, I think it's more to do with the sort of ontology that we need, so that
1: we don't need... Um, the, the ontologies that are exhaustive um, might be in some sense technically correct, but not actually very useful. Um, I mean, our, our experience is definitely been that uh, just as Arne has been saying that it's much better to allow people to say things that are right than to prevent them from saying things that are wrong because no, you can always recognize what's
2: wrong
0: eight by eight. thank you Matthew uh, other questions <coughs> since we are going to Wolf into yeah. a on Ontology evaluation and measurements, uh, shortly, uh, with a joint initiative between uh, NIST, and Ontolog, and ANCOR. Uh, maybe some questions might come from people who are planning uh, that activity. But did some, was someone try to ask a question just now? Uh, Peter. I'd like to ask a question, Attila Elche. Okay, go ahead, please, Attila.
1: Yeah, Uh, (coughs) Professor Lecter, you talk of quality assurance. Uh, Do we know what quality is or means for ontologies? I mean, we're trying to ensure quality, but then what is quality? This question we came up with... Yeah, the reason I put this up is I agree we don't know what quality is, and quality has frequently been given in terms of either coverage, uh, or has been given in some in terms of some abstract philosophical character characterization. What I wanted to focus on was that, like any other mathematical artifact, and I think that's what these. Are. Quality is whether we get the inferences out of them that we want. So the most obvious inferences that we want are the subsumption hierarchy. So the most obvious thing to check is actually, is a subsumption hierarchy as we would expect it. And one of the things which is, uh, somehow got missed on this, I deleted the wrong slide out of this set. The, there's a very interesting paper, which unfortunately has not been acted on, that came out early in the SNOMED cycle called Lexically Suggest, Semantically Refine. And what they did was use a lot of language tools to go through and look for things that that it sounded like ought to go together, either to be related together or to subsume one another. And then use that as a way, because a big thing is you have to focus your, your attention. See whether they actually what was there actually made sense, and they found that this was actually quite an efficient way to move things around. Another use, reason we use classifiers in, for this correctness is that actually it's much easier to spot things that are there than not there. And one of the effective classifiers is frequently that they put things in grossly the wrong place or refuse to move them from where they started, um, and so people spot them. But what I want to suggest is that quality above all is for a purpose and is based on the inferences that you derive from this. So the first step in establishing quality is to establish what are you going to use it for and what inferences do you expect to draw from it. And that the other thing that I wanted to suggest is that quality has got to include both the formal logical structure which is what, again, most quality assurance has looked at, and the actual effectiveness in use by people. Because we can certainly produce something which might be a beautiful logical artifact, but has an inner rate of reliability bordering on zero. And we have some concrete examples of that. Um, And it would seem to me that that would be... If I'm trying to think about now not just what are the local inferences I want to make, but what is the larger process that this is supposed to fit into, and is this the weak chain in the process, the weak link in the chain of the process, then the human element has to come in as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so, uh, so more or less seem to say. Uh, whatever you talked of of in terms of quality assurance actually pertains to quality. We could take consequence, content, context, process, and so on as part of uh, quality factors. Uh, Well, thank you.
0: More questions.
2: Uh, All all of this I find extremely fascinating and very... um, Very convincing. I I wonder just how much of the um, the materials that you've accumulated uh, over the years are are available for section download uh, for experimentation.
1: Uh, What site would I go to
2: to find all this stuff?
1: Uh, Right, the stuff on quality. As I say, there's a mea culpa on all of this, none of us did it very well. And what we did, we did internally, and we didn't actually make it part of the public process. So one of the things which I actually didn't say here as part of the process, for example, was that Galen had a set of tests, and we are trying to build into Protege Owl a unit testing tool that says, well, if you actually... so that you can say that either this... Here is a te- probe that ought to be classified in a particular place, or ought to be inconsistent if the constraints are satisfied, etc. And we find that actually extremely important. Unfortunately, until what we're just doing now, we never made that very formal. All of the actual Galen material is available on the Open Galen website, which is www.opengalen.org, which I think is on the front of this. It's usually on the front of my presentation
2: one of the things I'm especially curious about the details is that you mentioned that there are certain um, uh, patterns or combinations that you say that you, uh, instead of presenting um, potential use... The, the,
0: best source of that, the
1: best source of that is Jeremy Rogers' thesis, which is available on the Open website. Okay. If by any chance you can't find it, email, email me or email Jeremy,
0: okay.
1: who is jrogers, at cs.man.ac.uk we'll get to him
2: great okay thank you
1: and that has more there are several
0: papers about about it but his has the detail great. well uh, thank you very much professor rector and this has been an amazing talk in an amazing crowd today that we have thank you very much for inviting me it's been a pleasure enjoy really much